We're very fortunate today to have as our speaker, Richard Hartnett. Richard has been a member of the Prospero's High Watch since 1975 and a mentor teaching Prospero's classes since 1983 and a professional tarot reader since 1989. Tarot is on par with astrology as a tool for facilitating personal growth. Richard has written four books about tarot, The Call of the Soul, The New Old Gods, The Evolutionary Tarot, and The Not-So-Minor Arcana, and he's currently writing his fifth book, unless you finished it already, on the return to paradise. Anyway, uh, let's welcome Richard. Thank you all. <clears throat> well, I have to admit that I have really struggled the last few days in trying to get ready for this talk. And it seems like it's part of a larger pattern of something that's been going on in my life. Um, and as I was talking to Ben a few moments earlier, I was remembering a time when I actually got to spend some personal time with Thane, where he was coming through town and teaching a class. And um, he had me and Zoe Robinson, uh, who was then Patricia Hartman, come up to his room uh, and just sort of hang out with him in between uh, like from one day to the next. And one of the things that happened when I, when that, when I was up there was I listened to him talk about his angst <clears throat> or his struggle in bringing forth new material. And that was a tremendous gift to me because, uh, you know, I think like most of us, I, I certainly held the man in high regard and thought he was brilliant. And, um, you know, one of the exceptional minds of the last century, if you will. And uh, I thought, well, if this guy is as bright and as knowledgeable as he is, is still struggling, then I guess it's really not that different that I should be struggling. Or, you know, so it sort of made me, gave me some hope because I do find sometimes I feel like I'm, I'm wandering in the wilderness or I'm, I'm lost and I can't figure out how to go, go forward with what I'm working on. And um, I wanted to actually publicly apologize to the, the school today for not presenting CIT in uh, the fall as I had intended to do. I had certainly worked on it. I've got 30 or 40 different files that I worked on, uh, different notes and things of that sort. Um, but I just didn't feel like the class was finished. I didn't feel like it was coming together. And, um, as I was working on that class, I was actually struggling with the idea of, am I losing my mind? Am I losing my capacity to teach? Because I wasn't able to uh, make any progress, but I did some RHS in translation. And eventually I got to the place where I was able to start working again. And I ha I'm happy to report that I have been writing at least, even if I haven't been able to get too much done on the CIT class. But I will do it. I remain committed to doing that class. But, but I also trust my process. I trust my guide, if you will, or my muse, if you will. And, and I can't do something until it's ready. 
I, you know, I can't force things. I, I have to cooperate with the process. Um, and I, you know, I have to find a way to integrate a lot of material that I've come across. Um, I could just teach the class the way Thane taught it, and it would be a damn good class because he, of course, did a you know really amazing class. But my guidance within me keeps saying, no, you got to integrate this other material. You have to figure out a way to work it, and not to sound too willful because I, it's not just about what I think I should do. It's also about what my guidance says or my muse, if you will, tells me to do, and. Um, it keeps telling me that it is that the you know they just keep working on it and eventually I'm going to get there. So working on this material is somewhat like if you remember from our classes, we have this thing we talk about called autistic thinking. And in autistic thinking, you really are opening yourself up to being explored, and that's very much a good description of what the process is like for me of working on a talk or a class or a book is as, as I, I'll read I'll, some material, I, I will uh, explore some different material and I will wait and see, you know, how it speaks to me, how, you know, what is it telling me, um, how it inspires me. And sometimes that voice doesn't, doesn't speak and that can be very aggravated, aggravating. Um, when I teach, what I want to do is I want to embody the truth. And I will say that when I when it really works, that something happens for me that I would describe as I get lit. And those who read auras will tell me that my actually my colors change, that I actually get brighter. And so I guess you could say that when I'm teaching, I'm hoping to shine. Uh, and if that doesn't happen, it's very frustrating for me. But I think that's just part of, you know, being a writer or being an artist. Um, there is a like a hunger within you that wants to have its way with you, and and it's always a constant wrestling match, if you will, contest of wills. But you just keep you just keep at it. One way, but I think, would be to describe it as to say, I feel like the cosmos is smoothing away my rough edges. I feel like I'm being polished. And um, that's not necessarily a pleasant process. It's not necessarily easy. But you just you just keep at it. And then some days you wake up and the material starts to flow. You're able to write. And you're able to work at it for a long period of time. Sometimes I get maybe 20 minutes in, and that's all I can do. I can't say when I'm going to be ready with this class. All I can say is I'm working on it. And, I'll continue to work on it. And when it's ready, it's ready. And I want to thank the Dean of the school and the Dean Emeritus who have both been very, very supportive of my process and have tried to support me in as many different ways as they could think of, including uh, giving me a, a group of people that actually can review, review some of the material that I've been working on. So what all of this, uh, brings up for me is, is the question, why is working on this class so difficult? Why is working on the cosmic intention so difficult? And I think there are a lot of different reasons. I think we live in a very interesting time in which something new is trying to break through into human consciousness. And I really believe that um, 
it's changing the way we see the world. It's changing the way we experience the world. It's sort of like the old Chinese saying, may you be born in interesting times. And if you think about it, in the past, when someone was born during an interesting time, they didn't necessarily know that was what was going on. They didn't know that there was a, a fundamental shift in the way we were dealing with the world. They just were getting from one day to the next. And as new thought or new ideas are starting to emerge in consciousness, one of the things that we know is there's going to be a lot of crazy ideas. There's going to be a lot of crazy thinking. And there's going to be... Um, there's going to be things that appear to conflict. When we look at quantum mechanics, one of the things that uh, is being said a lot is that consciousness appears to have the capacity to influence the physical universe. Uh, you know, you've heard about these experiments when they're looking at an electron, and when they look for an electron to be a particle, they, get, they discover it's a particle. But then if they look for it to be a wave, they find that it's a wave. And the conclusion that they came up with out of that is that consciousness literally affects materiality, that, that the experimenters or the, were able to or, or were causing what was happening. Well, I, so what that says is our thoughts has the capacity to change the physical universe. Now, that insight, I think, is what I call a 30-second metanoia. At first, it sounds really profound, but then if you start to think about it, you realize, well, how is it really any different than when you think about, hey, it's time to do the dishes, and you go in the kitchen, and you, and you do your dishes, or you vacuum the rug, or you go visit a friend. We've been doing this our whole lives. Our consciousness comes up with something, and it, it initiates a change in the physical universe. So how is this experiment any different? Well, Maybe it's because they're not physically moving things around, but nonetheless, what the, what the uh, what they're showing us is the power of our attention. And make no mistake about it, our consciousness is very powerful. It does have the capacity to change our world. In other words, what we say is, change your worldview, and the world that you view will change. We think, and our thoughts bring forth change. And research shows that our thoughts used deliberately can create things that are beyond the ordinary. However, I think we make a mistake if we start to think that we can bend the universe or bend the laws of the universe to our personal egotistical desires. And trust me, there are a lot of people out there that think this way, that they think because the power of thought that they can literally redefine the universe. But I believe not only believe, I, I think I know that you cannot bend the laws and principles that are the bedrock of our universe. What you can do is change your experience. You can change your experience of what is going on in the universe, what's going on in your life by changing your worldview. We know this through our teaching in the school that when you work on through RHS and translation, changing the way you think about things that your experience of the world will literally change. And there is no limit to the power of that. But we do have to understand there's kind of a paradox here, which is you can change your worldview and change your world, but you don't get to change the laws and principles that govern the universe. I think that the truth is very simple and very straightforward. And that when we come up with these complex mechanisms to explain things, it's sort of like, when Galileo went before the Inquisition 
about presenting Copernicus's idea that the sun was the center of the solar system instead of the earth, this was not very well received and they were actually persecuting him for this idea. And they had sort of like a court and another person uh, arguing for the other side came came to court with this really elaborate, complex clock-like mechanism that could explain how the planets would move backwards in the sky. Uh, and it was a really elaborate mechanism. But when Galileo talked about the sun as the center of the solar system, it was very straightforward. The truth is usually very straightforward. We create complexity sometimes simply because we don't know how to reconcile some of the information that the universe is presenting to us. And we've all heard about these things like Schrodinger's cat or the quantum leaps or double split experiments, and there's a host of others. And when I try to make sense of all these various experiments, and trust me, I've read a lot of different books about this, sometimes I just get a headache. I think anybody listening to me might fall asleep or take go on holiday because this stuff is so complex. Now, I, I have to share this. Ben recently sent us out an email in which he talked about, uh, the email talks about this guy named John Stuart Bell, who's a Northern Irish physicist whose work sparked a quiet revolution in quantum physics. So here we go again. Listen to this. One of the most unsettling things learned in the last 50 years is that the universe is not real where you are. Real means that things have, have clear properties even when no one is looking at them. For example, an apple can be read even when one is looking at it. Local means that things can only be affected by their surroundings and that effects can move faster. It goes on like this. And, and there's some really interesting ideas in there. But I think it's kind of funny because the guys, he's a physicist. And if you look at the picture, in the background, there's a lot of these different formulas on the board which says that physics are pretty exact. I think the really interesting thing about this article is that there's this, um, it appears as if he's holding something in his hand that looks like light. And I believe it's a, it's a symbol that they use in quantum physics. But what struck me is it looks like Neptune's pitchfork. Now, <laughs> Neptune is the god of illusion delusion, fantasy. <laughs> so I think sometimes with all of this quantum physics stuff, it gets a bit like that. It gets a bit to be like a lot of gobbledygook, which I think creates a lot of confusion. Now, that got me thinking, why are we having such a hard time with these various experiments where things, an electron sometimes appears to be a particle, and sometimes it appears to be a wave, because we think it can't possibly be. We come from the background of Isaac Newton, where he basically said the matter is matter, and energy is energy, and never the twain shall meet, if you will, that they are completely different, separate realities. But here we have something on the quantum realm, uh, and not just electrons, but also light. Light appears to be particulate, and the, there's photons, but it also appears to be wave-like. So in the quantum realm, there's all these things that seem to contradict the way we look at the world. Now, I think that what's really going on here is that the universe is challenging us to change the way we look at the world. 
we look at the world dualistically. And what that means is that something is either this or it's that. Uh, and that when you look at the world dualistically, one of the key things that goes on is you choose. You choose this or you choose that. But when we look at the quantum mechanics realm, one of the things I think is being said to us is we need to change our paradigm. Now, what's a paradigm? A paradigm is not, it's not a, a value judgment. It is a literally the way we experience the world or the way we see the world. We see the world through our paradigm. And the paradigm that we have looked at through um, in the past for a long time, I mean, basically our entire history, we've looked at the world dualistically. It's either this or it's that. It's right or it's wrong. It's good or it's bad. It's male or it's female. It's heaven or it's earth. There's so many different ways that we look at things dualistically. And when we look at things dualistically, what is this most significant thing we do? We choose. We choose one over the other. And when we choose one over the other, we leave out. We reject. We push away. And Carl Jung talks a lot about the idea that when we push ideas uh, out of our consciousness, when we reject part of the universe, that what it does is it becomes our shadow. And think about a shadow is. That's part of why I wore the black today. Because <laughs> things that are in shadow are in the darkness. They're hidden to us. We push it out of our conscious mind. We push it away. But it doesn't go away in a holistic universe, in a oneness universe, which we all, as translators, know we live in a holistic universe. In a holistic universe, everything is always there. And that's part of what quantum physics is showing us is that you don't choose that it, that it is possible on the quantum realm that things are both matter and energy, which would be a holistic way of looking at things as opposed to a dualistic way of things. And not just in the quantum realm, but also we see there's a tremendous amount going on in our society around sexual identity. Uh, and the there's that. L, G, B, X, Y, Z, N, O, U, P. I can't even remember the whole thing. But it is a very significant thing that's occurred where all of these things, of, of uh, all of these ideas about sexual identity are coming into our human consciousness. And we're realizing that we can't put people into these little categories anymore. The, the truth of the matter is that there, we are all very diverse and that there's tremendous diversity, and that the way to think about this holistically as opposed to dualistically is to not say this is right and this is wrong, or this is acceptable, this is unacceptable, but to recognize that any expression can be expressed in an infinite variety of ways. And that all of us are both male and female, maybe not in a physical sense, for some it is true in a physical sense, but more, it's true on a behavioral sense, in an abstract sense. And that if we can embrace that, if we can, if we can embrace our androgynous nature, that we are both assertive and receptive, regardless of what we choose to do with that, that gives us a foundation for accepting uh, diversity, for accepting that we're all different and that everybody has their own unique expression. Uh, the book that I've been working on, the Return to Paradise book, 
Um, in that book, uh, I go through the whole thing about what happens with Adam and Eve and eating of the fruit. And when you read this very carefully, what you see is there's all these ideas, these interpretations of that particular story that basically justify the persecution of women. But even more than that, they justify the rejection of the feminine within ourselves. Uh, and that has caused us a lot of difficulty. Now, I think that, that you could argue that that was a survival strategy, but we're long past that time in which we need to polarize so extremely so that we can overcome uh, the challenges of the environment, the, the violence and the difficulty of animals or the violence or difficulty of each other. And that now more than anything, we need to embrace uh, ourselves as being androgynous. We need to have a balance within ourselves between the masculine and feminine so that we can um, deal with our, our problems, our challenges. If we're strictly masculine, one of the things that we do is we cut ourselves off from the intuitive. We cut ourselves off from the feminine, from the sensitive, from the emotional parts of ourselves, and that we need those parts of ourselves in order to develop our sense of compassion, in order to have an ability to understand each other and to, and to see the differences and to resolve our differences. We have to you know, look at things in an androgynous way. So maybe it's really quite simple. Maybe just as we are both male and female, maybe electrons really are matter and energy. And that, that the paradigm shift would be moving away from duality into looking at the world holistically. Now, when you look at the world holistically, I think that it does change your worldview and it makes it possible for you to solve problems that you could not otherwise solve. Now, what discipline do we know of that helps us to do this? Well, there is no greater discipline than the discipline of translation. Because translation basically says, truth is that which is so, that which is not true is not so. Meaning it doesn't exist, never has existed, can't exist. There is only truth. Truth is all there is. So anything that exists in the universe exists because it's an expression of truth. But figuring out how that works, like on the quantum realm or in terms of human behavior, that's the challenge. That's the work that we face today. And as translators, you know, I think we all begin with this idea of translation as this powerful tool that we can use to help ourselves to change our lives, to correct problems in, in our lives. And that certainly is true. But I hope that you'll also recognize that at a certain point, translation should be a discipline. And what I mean by that is you don't translate just to solve a problem or, or, or to correct some sort of crisis going on in your life, that you actually practice translation as a practice. You do it on a regular basis because that literally is reprogramming the way you look at the world. It's helping you to make this paradigm shift that we need to make so that uh, things can, you know, we can start to find emerge into a new era. We can find the way to reconcile all the different um, things that appear to conflict. Now, one word I like that I think is very helpful is the word paradox, because paradox basically says 
that anything and everything that you look at that you think of as opposites is fundamentally and intrinsically connected. An example of that would be male and female. If you said the word male and you did not have the existence of female in the universe, the word male would not would be meaningless. It, you have to have both in order for both to have any kind of uh, substance in our reality. But how do you get to that? You get to that through the process of translation and RHS. You get to that through looking at your world. You get to it through changing your worldview so the world that you view will change. Well, thank you all for coming. And um, we can all wish each other a warm aloha.